Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. My co-host, Joe Hagan, is on a reporting trip this week, so you just have me. But we have a fantastic interview this week. We have the author, Kate Anderson Brower, who has a new book out called Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon. And it is a fantastic portrait of someone who we all know, but maybe we don't actually know at all. And this is the first authorized biography of Elizabeth Taylor, which is a little hard to believe considering how many uh, pieces of information we know about her, how many magazine covers had her picture on it, how many movies um, had documented her and her love life and her affairs and all of the work that she has done. But this book really is such a three-dimensional portrait of an icon. We have a fantastic excerpt of the book on VanityFair.com, all about her advocacy work, um, about her visiting AIDS hospices in the 80s and 90s. And it was so illuminating for me to read and to talk to Kate. So I hope you will have a listen. You will learn so much about what it actually means to be famous, particularly a famous woman, about her famous friends, yes, about her love life and about all of the advocacy work and maybe why she was someone who was more drawn um, to help hurt people and broken people and um, all of the the tumult that she went through in her life. And it, it really helped bring someone to life for me. And I know this book will too. So have a listen and we'll see you back on the other side. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. I am here with Kate Anderson Brower, the best-selling author of some of your favorite books and a member of our VF family. She has a new book coming out this week called Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon. It's the first ever authorized biography of the late legendary star Kate. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Emily, for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. We had an excerpt uh, run in Vanity Fair this week, and it was just absolutely phenomenal. It was about Elizabeth Taylor's advocacy work when it came to AIDS and HIV 
in the 80s and 90s, and it was really just so eye-opening. I'm such a fan of yours and such a fan of, of all the books that you have written. This one is a departure from you. It's a little bit different than the kinds of things that you're writing about, and I'm so curious how you decided to work on this book. Uh, yeah, it is It is very different from books I've written about First Ladies um, or the White House. It's. I was just getting really sick of the partisanship in Washington, and I was brainstorming ideas. And you know, as an author, you're always wondering, you know, can I commit to something for three years of my life? Um, it has to be really special. And so I was talking to my husband, and he, he brought up Senator John Warner, and he said, mm-hmm. why don't you why don't you talk to him about Elizabeth Taylor? It could be a magazine story and you never know where it might take you um, because she was his sixth, well, he was her sixth husband. Um, And they had a really difficult marriage, difficult time in Washington, um, which I write about in the book. But it just spoke to me because she was so many things. I don't think there's someone who fits all of those different things that you're looking for when you're when you're thinking about a, a subject. You know, she was an activist, she was an entrepreneur, she was an actress, she was uh, a child star, the last star to come out of the Hollywood studio system. I mean, she's just fascinating. So I got to know Senator Warner and he put me in touch with her family. I went out to LA and met with them and uh, they opened up this amazing archive and they have this office in Beverly Hills with like a whole room of her, um, you know, c- costumes from National Velvet to, wow. yeah, it's pretty incredible to see. Um, and then they have boxes and boxes of letters and they have an archivist who keeps track of all of this. It's pretty amazing. That That is incredible. I'm wondering, this is someone who has been written about and covered and sort of idolized for decades. Why now did they allow someone to enter into that fantastic office in Beverly Hills and have access to all of those letters and all of those papers? I think that it's, you know, it was a decade after she had passed away. And for a long time, they were so protective of her image and her legacy. They wanted to make sure that whoever wrote it would, you know, write flattering things. And I think that was a concern I had going into it, you know, that it wasn't going to be just a love letter to Elizabeth. It was going to include her addiction, her problems as a mother. And they were finally ready to kind of, I think, introduce people to this kind of full-fledged woman, which she was. And, you know, her assistant, a lovely man named Tim Mendelson, who worked for her for 20 years, you know, looked at her as a maternal figure in his life. Mm. And so I think it was a struggle at certain points. But they, to their credit, worked through it and they were completely fine with some of the unflattering things, shall we say, that are in the book because nobody's perfect. That's what makes her interesting. Well, I also think that Um, Sometimes when you have a figure who is larger than life, who is such an icon, they get flattened into a caricature. And I'm sure that as an author, uh, the the trick is bringing them into 3D and to really make them a a multidimensional person. Because, Because Elizabeth Taylor is both so known and a little bit unknown, what did you go into this project thinking about her? Were you someone who had known a lot about her before or was this sort of just a, a shot in the dark? It was really a shot in the dark for me. I didn't know that much about her. I mean, growing up in the 80s, I had seen her on, you know, tabloid covers at the supermarket checkout line, right? In a wheelchair, 
being made fun of by Joan Rivers, all of that stuff. Larry Fortensky marriage was something I, I knew about. But um, so I, I think you're totally right that as uh, women especially tend to get um, flattened, like you said, and they become this one dimensional figure. And and I wanted to show her as a mother and not not ju- I had no idea she had four children. That to me was I, honestly, really interesting. As I read your excerpt, and, and I'm so excited to actually dig into the full book over this Christmas break. I, I actually have never heard about her as a mother before, which is so yeah. fascinating to me that me that whole part is excised. Yeah, it's right that we, we don't know about her struggles as, uh, I mean, she was somebody who had to navigate the world of being a working mother in such an incredible way. And at such an early time in the 50s and 60s. And I think she had a tremendous amount of guilt about it. You know, she had her kids in boarding schools in Europe, mm-hmm. um, but she had a whole army of people to support. You know, she had this entourage, she had this lifestyle. And and so many times I think about her eight marriages to seven men, and I think about how she was trying to fill this void in her life. You know, people wonder why she got married so many times. And I think she, from the age of 12 on, was this icon. And she wasn't able to have any control, really, except over this one thing, which was who she was going to marry. And then also when she was sick and when she couldn't work. I mean, that was another theme that I, I noticed is that she was often in the hospital because it was the only time she could have any control over her life mm. and say, I'm not going to the set today. Um, which is fascinating to me. Um, it's so fascinating. To, I, I never really thought about it like that. And, and so much of her romantic life has become such tabloid fodder and, and a punchline and to think about it coming from a deeper place. Of course it comes from a deeper place, but no one really ever takes the time to to think about the the deeper root here. I think I read that you interviewed some 250 people for this, which is honestly a, a real reporting feat and you were going through thousands of, of letters and personal notes what were some of the more surprising thing that you found as you sort of combed through her collection of things and of correspondence and, and talking to some of the people who were closest to her? I mean, she really was an accidental feminist in a way. I think the fact that she was somebody who again and again stood up for herself and for other women, including Marilyn Monroe, um, at a time when Marilyn wasn't getting treated fairly by the studio, Elizabeth offered to help her. Um, Elizabeth was somebody who wouldn't have said that she was a feminist, but everything she did points to it. You know, she was demonized. Uh, for her affair with Richard Burton and for breaking up before then um, Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher's marriage, you know. But in fact, Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher's marriage was kind of a show anyway. So you Mm. see this kind of struggle that she faces um, internally. I think that she was very strong-willed and when people criticized her, she tried very hard to shut it out, but she was only a human being. I mean, I think that the thing that her letters reveal the most in these these diary entries are her vulnerability. You know, when she's writing to Richard Burton and begging him to take her back or to get married a second time, it's very authentic and kind of, she's a beautiful writer. And she just says, you know, 
And at one point she says to him, I just want you to to want to do this as much as I do, you know, because they got married a second time after being married for a decade. And what was that like? Why did she need that? Why did she want to go back to him? And I think a lot of it is this sense of escaping Elizabeth Taylor, like escaping mm-hmm. this thing that was crafted for her when she was just a child and being married so many times and being Mrs. John Warner and being Mrs. Larry Vertensky, these were ways to get out of this um, this one-dimensional world that was created for her when she was just a kid. Do you think then, and maybe this is my, I was born in the late 80s, and so I maybe missed a lot of this, and so my understanding of Elizabeth Taylor is probably truly from punchlines, and and movie references and it's it's less firsthand, but to me I've always thought of it as this great romance, right? That that they ended up together again. Is that totally wrong? Yeah, oh, <laughs> it is. Okay. Sorry to tell you that. Um, yeah, their relationship was so complicated because a lot of the letters from Richard are kind of apologizing for fights they had the night before and when he was mm-hmm. drunk and, you know, and a lot of letters from her to him are saying, stop, give me, you know, I don't need all of these gifts. I just want you. It's like this struggle that they had with their fame, with this kind of third partner in their marriage, which I think was the fame. Mm. And they made some great movies together, like Virginia Woolf, but they also made some movies that were not so great because they just needed the money. And one letter that Richard wrote to her when they were separated, I thought was so interesting. He said, you know, I walked into a store today and bought something with my own money and I was by myself and it was like the best experience, you know, this idea of being free of that entourage. Mm. Um, And Elizabeth, I think, really wanted to be free of it, but you know, this idea that she was going to, she always talked about wanting to just be Richard's wife and retire and all that. I can't imagine her just being content with that. She craved the drama too. There's a lot going on psychologically with her and wanting men that were domineering, you know, versus gentle. She wanted Mm. tough men to talk back to her. And that, that's, uh, she had a very complicated, tricky relationship with her father. That's right. Yeah. I mean, she said that he um, had abused her Mm -hmm. and when she was just a child and this idea that she always was seeking out men who were, you know, violent in some ways. I think that she hit them and they hit her and um, there was a certain amount of violence in her life. She was her second husband um, was a very, you know, debonair British Uh, actor named Michael Wilding and she got sick of him. She didn't Mm. want, she craved something more. She, and I think that that is partially the, the thing that comes with great fame, right? There are not many child stars that make it through and she's one of the few who did. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of s***. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, 
Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They could go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. It's so interesting to hear you talk about fame in this era, which is such a different era than than we're living in now, but particularly for female stars, it doesn't sound all that different. It doesn't sound like so much has changed. I would say maybe in the last 24 months, there's a, at least an awareness of how we're talking about and to female celebrities. But before that, everything was on the table, their romantic lives, how they looked, uh, their diets, uh, every hair change, every jewelry purchase, all of that was so scrutinized and talked about in a way that was so gendered. Um, but it doesn't feel all that different. Is that something that stuck out to you as someone who's going back in time and looking at all these correspondence and the coverage and talking to people? Yeah. I mean, I think that she was treated terribly through the lens of today. I mean, after um, like you said, a recent history with Me Too, and I hope what we've done to kind of see women um, and and realize the unfair expectations and just insane um, way that women in Hollywood are really treated and that their weight is just scrutinized and physically they, you know, can't age. And that's another thing Elizabeth did very well is she showed people, look, I can be in my 70s in a wheelchair and um, I'm still beautiful and amazing, right? It's that, so I think that there are some ways that we move beyond it and hopefully women would not be treated quite, I mean, there were things that shocked me, like for instance, when she um, and Richard were coming back from filming Cleopatra and there was a member of Congress who, who actually wanted to ban them from returning because of their affair and the Vatican condemning Elizabeth. I mean, these things just for having an affair um, and the strength of character, I think that took for her to kind of look beyond it and, and get beyond it. And I think it did haunt her because she talked about seeing nuns, you know, looking at her and feeling like she was being judged and nightmares she would have about, about nuns and the Catholic church. And she converted to Judaism. Um, I think that she was somebody who said she didn't internalize the judgment, but there's no, I mean, she was human. So you can see throughout her life that she did struggle. It's, it's so phenomenal. It's also making me think like, God, we don't write things down anymore. Yeah. And, um, I just hope that people who are worth knowing about, or even, even everyday people are, are documenting these because what a, what a fantastic treasure trove of, of information you were able to, to mine long after she was gone. Thank you. I mean, it was, um, 
it was kind of a, a strange thing as a journalist because you're you're getting inside someone's head. And I loved reading. I mean, the letters she wrote to people after they died was really the most introspective she ever was when she wrote mm. to Michael Jackson and Richard Burton after they passed away. And that's when I think it was her own form of therapy because she was from an era where, you know, she didn't really believe in therapy. Um, life and surviving the hard knocks of life for her therapy, you know. She was, I mean, another thing that shocked me, just factually, she, when she was 26, she had already been twice divorced and once widowed and had three kids to take care of. Oh my like, God. So she needed to get paid. She needed money. And that's what she did that was so brilliant is, you know, basically going to MGM when they wanted her for Cleopatra and saying, I'm not doing this unless you give me a million dollars, which was outlandish at the time. And she became the first actor, man or woman, to get paid that much money. And I think that's that incredible. that's amazing. Yeah. It's incredible. And and also like a real study in knowing your value and, and uh, knowing that they will have to put up or shut up. And it's it's really incredible and such a trailblazing thing. You just brought up Michael Jackson, and I have to ask you about their relationship. Obviously, with 2022 eyes, it's probably a little bit different than than um, at the time, but I have to hear more and hear, hear all the dirt about it. It was important to me that we talk in the book, honestly, about Michael, because Elizabeth is so was so close to him and to his children, and I think that um, that was something that going into the book, I needed to say that the allegations against him are certainly, you know, an overwhelming number and you have to, you have to acknowledge that, but she never did. She never, uh, once you were her friend, she was loyal, um, through thick and thin, but you know, um, she, she had this kind of cloak and dagger, uh, sort of escape that she, she hatched for him where she went to Mexico city and flew with him to um, London to get check him into rehab to try to save his life because he was performing in Mexico City and they had like a decoy basically pretending to be him. I mean, it was just mm. planes circling the globe. Um, this very dramatic moment and a lot of their relationship, I think, and this desire for her to save him was that sense of being child stars and they both suffered a lot as kids and had no choice um so she wanted to protect him but i talked to one of our housekeepers who said that she found um a syringe right after michael left the bathroom uh, you know he was doing drugs according to this housekeeper in elizabeth's house which isn't surprising given what we know but she also was an addict so i think they had that in common too God, what a complicated thing being a child star and yeah. a mega celebrity is. And you both have to take everything seriously. And also to to have someone like you understanding the root of it is helpful to really create these, these full portraits of what these people were going through. I want to just ask you about her advocacy because that is such an important part of her legacy and uh, particularly um, toward to the later years of her life and the excerpt that we have in Vanity Fair really focuses on her advocacy. And I was so blown away by how it was off camera, so much of it. And I obviously she brought um, issues around AIDS and HIV to the forefront and certainly was a face uh, for advocacy around it. But 
Uh, it feels so different than the kind of celebrity advocates that we have now. It feels like every celebrity is required to be an advocate now, but it doesn't feel genuine for 99.9% of them. And for Elizabeth Taylor, the way you, you portrayed it, it feels like the opposite of what we're witnessing now. So just talk to me a little bit about her work and her motivations and, and what she was actually doing to support people who were struggling. I think that's so true that now, you know, you can fire off a tweet or something and that's your advocacy work, right? Back then she was doing all of this behind the scenes. And um, one of the chapters about her HIV and AIDS work, I open with her sitting with a friend in the 90s and she's doing her makeup in the bathroom and her assistant comes in, you know, and says somebody, I don't know personally, but a friend of a friend just passed away from AIDS and he's in the morgue. And... You know, he doesn't even have family and there's no money. And she gets her business manager on the phone and says, you know, we have to no no uh, mother's son is going to lay on a cold slab mm -hmm. if there's something I can do about it over the weekend. So they had, you know, a proper burial for him. And I think that she did things like that all the time where she was she paid for uh, um a woman's, you know, new set of teeth for a, a woman who had no teeth. This is an AIDS related, but because she felt like, how are you going to get a job if you don't have teeth, you know? Mm. So she did these things that were behind the scenes. And for her in the 80s, you know, AIDS was such a radioactive issue and people were so, there was so much homophobia. And you look at what happened to Ryan White. I mean, it's just tremendously heartbreaking. And she was touched by... Um, and he, of course, was a boy who had gotten a blood transfusion and they didn't want him to go back to his school. But so if you were gay, a lot of times family members would learn that have this double whammy where they learn that their son has AIDS and then learn that he's gay, you know. Mm -hmm. And for her, she had a daughter-in-law who was HIV positive, um, one of her assistants was HIV positive, um, and then she grew up with so many loving, so many gay men like Montgomery mm. Cliffs, you know, and sure. Rock Hudson. And so she did look in the mirror and she just said, you know, bitch, do something. I mean, <laughs> no, no one else is doing something. Why am I not doing anything? And she chaired the first AIDS fundraiser in 1985 in LA, the first major one and raised over a million dollars and got a lot of people like Frank Sinatra not wanting to help at first, which I was surprised by. Mm, and um, yeah, I mean, people were hanging up on Elizabeth Taylor, you know? It's hard to believe. One of the more striking things that you wrote about so beautifully was her visiting AIDS hospices around the country and and getting full glam before she would go and wearing her gigantic azure cut diamond. That detail is just so phenomenal because she wanted to give the people what they expected of Elizabeth Taylor. And you talk, you give one example of, of someone saying, oh, I just had this mirage that Elizabeth Taylor visited me and it was, it was actually her. And it just, that's a good person. That's, that's a, a person who is both incredibly self-aware and, and giving. 
Yeah. And as somebody who has experienced a lot of pain in their life, you know, she had a lot of back pain after National Velvet. She was an opioid addict because of it. Um, and so other people who were in pain or who were being somehow um, thought of as lesser than, you know, or treated badly in the world, she was drawn to the broken people because she felt of her, I think she always felt that she was an outsider too. Mm. So, yeah, that is a good person. That's someone, there are not a lot of photos of her in AIDS hospices. I could barely find any, you know, because she didn't want any. And if she found out that that the press was going to be there, she just wouldn't show up. So that's incredible. It is. It's it's so remarkable. And, and she would spend time there. I, I can't remember the specific detail, and so I want you to fill it in for me. But But when she would go and visit, she would be doing she would be doing appearances in these cities and stop at these AIDS hospices in each city and then have someone donate to the AIDS hospice and then she would match it. Can you just give me the specific detail? Yeah, so she would go on these big um, tours for White Diamonds in the early 90s and and Passion before then. But this is when she These are her fragrances. Yes. Yes. Her iconic fragrances. She built this huge um, perfume empire. And so um, she would go to... Uh, you know, Macy's or wherever, whichever department store. And then that same day she would visit a hospice and she would so shrewd that she would give money to the hospice. And then she would have the perfume company give money to the hospice and match it. And then the department store, I mean, she was just bundling huge amounts of money for each hospice she visited. So it wasn't just about you know, touching people with AIDS, which was tremendous at the time that she did that. It's very much like Princess Di, you know? Sure. But but then also funding the hospices and going and talking to the nurses about what they were needing in their lives and what it was like for them. And some of the nurses I talked to were still, they were just in tears remembering what it was like to have Elizabeth come and, and say, you know, how are you handling this? Because the, the death was so extraordinary at the time. I mean, there would be, you know, two or three people dying overnight at a hospice and the next day mm. the beds would be filled. So it was just this, I think before there was AZT or any treatment, it was um, just heartbreaking because you're visiting people who you know are going to die. And um, I love this one letter she wrote to an interior decorator who was in you know, in the hospice. And, and she said, I hope you, you better get better soon because I want to redo my house in all shades of lavender, you know? And it's like, she knew that she knew that he wasn't going to leave, but she wanted to, to give him a sense of hope. Oh, well, you have so many phenomenal details that are so revealing in this book. So I urge everybody to take some time over these holidays to pick it up Kate, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time going through this. And your book, Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon, is, is out now. Everyone should pick it up. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Emily. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker 
to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.